This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The first interview you're about to hear is with Dr Richard Dennis. Richard is the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute. He joined me to closely examine Prime Minister Morrison's supposedly safe plan for opening up Australia. Richard talks of the 70% and 80% vaccination targets for eligible adults, and he delves into and explains the Doherty Institute's modelling, what its underlying assumptions are, and how it's being utilised by our politicians. Next up, you'll hear from writer Bree Lee. Bree joined me to discuss her latest book, Who Gets to be Smart? Privilege, Power and Knowledge. Bree examines her own privilege and presumptions and realises that far from offering equality of opportunity, Australia's education system, among others in the world, exacerbates socioeconomic disadvantage. Then, finally, independent art curator Sue Kramer joined me to discuss the work and life of pioneering Swedish abstract artist of the 19th and 20th century, Hilma Arf Klint. Hilma Arf Klint's work is being featured in a fully virtual exhibition at the Art Gallery of New South Wales called Hilma Arf Klint at Home. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm so delighted to be with you on this Tuesday morning. I think the sun is kind of, kind of creeping out here, and hopefully we have a nice week. It's looking pretty fantastic. And to get us off on a good foot, I'm really excited to be speaking once again with Dr Richard Dennis, who is the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute. Good morning. Good morning, Richard. Oh, I jumped in there. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. Um, I was just going to add what we're we're going to be covering, which is, you know, I won't give too much away, uh, but we are going to be talking about Scott Morrison's supposed safe plan for opening up, which he's uh, used and deployed in terms of messaging quite a lot. And uh, I, I mean, people would be forgiven for not reading this safe plan, which really looks like the vaccine rollout document, but changed. And um, yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about not just the plan, but obviously the modelling that has informed this plan and how the Prime Minister and the government is actually using this modelling to justify their plan. Uh, And obviously the politicking that's going on around this and what is happening underneath the surface, I guess you could say. And it's something which you have been writing about in the Saturday paper, but and obviously talking about and tweeting about, which has been fantastic, but you've also put out a report uh, which is up on the Australia Institute website called Doherty Modelling, Assumptions of TTIQ and Their Impact on Phase 2 Modelling. Don't freak out anyone who hears that title because, <laughs> <laughs> as we know, Richard, you have a, a way with words. So uh, we'll jump straight into it, but maybe we could set the scene for where we're at at the moment uh, in terms of the reality of the COVID situation here in Australia and um, how that differs from the reality uh, or assumed reality that the Doherty modelling is actually using. Yeah, no, happy to. And yes, while the paper you read out is a bit of a mouthful, we've we've just put up a new paper, eight, eight things you probably don't know about the Doherty modelling. And, you know, how's that for a much better title? That's a good one. I like yeah. that. I'll have that. I've got that one open too so we can Excellent. go for that one. 
Yeah, so so let's be clear, like all modelling, whether it's an economic model or a climate model or an epidemiological model, all, all models are based on assumptions. The fact that a model has assumptions isn't a criticism of a model, it's a description of a model. Models are all about assumptions. The, the issue is that the assumptions in the model uh, are useful for the reality that we're trying to understand. So, you know, in year 12 physics, you know, back in the day, you know, we kind of figured out how far a cannonball would fire if you knew how fast it left the cannon and the angle the cannon was at. And, you know, Newtonian physics has got a whole bunch of really simple assumptions, including just ignore air friction. You know, and for calculating how far a cannonball will go, you can ignore air friction if you want. But if you wanted to figure out how fast a plane will fly and you ignored air friction, then that would be a really dumb assumption to make. Mm. So it's okay to have simplifying assumptions in models. That's what a model is. Uh, but when the simplifying assumptions don't map with important parts of reality, then that's when bad things happen. So that's that's the sort of background uh, sort of, you know, defence of, of the good folk at Doherty who've worked hard and done the best they could with scant available information. Now, what happened was... Back in June, we had the, the people at Doherty modelling to help us understand how vaccinations would affect the spread of the virus and how different rates of vaccination would give us more comfort about other restrictions that we could open up. So that's all fine. We're back in June. And back in June, you know, we didn't have an enormous outbreak raging across New South Wales. So some of the assumptions that the Doherty modelling are based on is the assumption, for example, that our contact tracing system would never be overwhelmed. That that made sense in June because, you know, we'd, we'd seen what happened in Melbourne with 700 cases and, and contact tracing held up pretty good at 700 cases. So Doherty thought, all right, contact tracing works even when there's a big outbreak. Well, we've got 1,500 a day in New South Wales now, and contact tracing has been, you know, basically de been decimated in Sydney. It doesn't work at the moment. Um, so there's key assumptions like that that were reasonably made by Doherty. It's not a conspiracy, but the consequence of using models that make assumptions like that in a world that looks radically different, well, the consequences are really quite significant. Absolutely, they are. And there are a number of, um, I guess, medical and scientific assumptions in this uh, modelling as well, which I thought I'd just highlight before we jump into what you've been writing about. And some of that is relating to um, the severity of the Delta variant. And at the time that they were modelling, there wasn't as much data or robust data as they had hoped for in terms of trying to figure out, you know, how fast is it transmitting, um, how severe is it in different age groups, uh, who would be affected, and obviously vaccination plays a role in that. Uh, and so they ended up saying that they would really model it based on the alpha variant or most of the assumptions based on the alpha variant because it had better data um, obviously with some Delta-related inputs. But 
on in the actual report itself, it does actually make that clear. Um, and they were also obviously when we're talking about um, August last year and the uh, the Melbourne outbreak, the second wave, that was of the, what they would call the wild strain or the original strain of coronavirus. And yep. that's how you know well our test and tracing system stacked up with that particular variant. However, we've since had, as you would well be aware, Richard the Alpha variant, which hailed from the UK, and now obviously the Delta variant, which originated uh, overseas in India, and we saw how that affected uh, the people of India and obviously Australia closing its borders to our own citizens uh, and permanent residents. So that was one thing I thought was particularly interesting that hasn't been really drawn out. Uh, And now we thankfully do have, I think, uh, worldwide better data on the Delta variant and how it's presenting in different age groups and how quickly it's transmitting and how severe the illness is compared with last year's COVID illness. And I don't think many people would argue that it's uh, not, if it's the same, it's definitely more severe. And then the other thing, Richard, uh, which, which was really striking to me was the fact that they had done a thought experiment around children to see should children be included in their plans. And so, you know, we need to be aware that this plan actually relates to um, 16 and over, so the adult eligible population being vaccinated. So it's not the total population of Australia. And the reason why it seems that they said that was because they felt that um, vaccinating parents would protect children enough. So it was kind of a secondary protection that children would receive by not being vaccinated themselves. So I just wanted to point that out and also to get your input and views when you were reading this modelling and looking at some of those assumptions, whether there were things that stuck out to you, because those were the things that instantly stuck out to me. Oh, look, absolutely. And again, you know, you can't blame the modellers back in June Mm. for using the best available information they had back in June. And we now know a lot more about Delta than they did then. Uh, And a lot of what we've learned about Delta is is not great news. Um, And look, just to be crystal clear, vaccinations are a really good idea. If you're not vaccinated, please go and get vaccinated. If you've got friends or family who aren't, encourage them to. It's good for them. It's good for you. It's good for the community. Please don't interpret anything that I'm saying as in any way encouraging uh, concerns or doubts about the effectiveness of vaccines. They work for individuals. They absolutely do. But what we're learning about Delta is that perhaps even though the vaccination will stop or not stop, will significantly lower the chance that you'll get really sick or go to hospital or die, and that's a great reason to get vaccinated, uh, there's pretty alarming um, new data suggesting that the odds of people who are vaccinated passing it on to other people uh, are a lot higher than than with Alpha and that we'd previously thought. So, again, do vaccinations help keep us safe? You bet they do. Um, but they're probably not as good at stopping us spreading the virus to other people as we thought we did. So, again, that's, that's information that wasn't available to the people that were doing the Doherty modelling back in June. Now that we are beginning to suspect this, we probably need to be far more cautious uh, about opening up with these, and I'm going to use the word carefully here, but arbitrary 70 and 80% thresholds. Um, you know, we've kind of, we, we based those 70 and 80% thresholds uh, on some information available in June. Well, when the information changes, the threshold should change. 
Absolutely. And that's something that uh, Sharon Lewin, who heads up the Doherty Institute, said is that models are there to be updated. And when we have new information, we change the assumptions in the modelling so that the modelling is well, the most accurate it can possibly be. Uh, and obviously, you know, modelling is about kind of predicting an outcome and there are so many variables, as we'll soon hear from you, Richard. Um, one thing we should also mention, because you've just mentioned their vaccination and transmission and, and these arbitrary targets, uh, and we do hear about them quite a lot. <laughs> Anyone who tunes into uh, any press conference, but certainly the New South Wales one and the Victorian one and the federal press conferences, will hear the leaders trying to give people a lot of hope to say, you know, we need to get vaccinated, go out, get vaccinated, which, yes, we absolutely should and ASAP, you know, book it in now. Um and, and I guess trying to give us hope that, well, we'll give you more freedoms. That's the kind of language that's been used by Gladys Berejiklian, and the Premier of New South Wales. If we meet this 70% of the adult, eligible adult population, so that's actually 56% of the total population, or and if we meet this other threshold, this final threshold that's been modelled, which is 80% of the adult population, which is actually 64%, of the total population. So we've heard epidemiologists say, well, actually, you know, that's a great kind of interim target, but we really should be looking at total population targets, not just adult population targets. Now that we've got children eligible for Pfizer 12 years and over. And that's also something the Doherty didn't know about in June. Uh, the TGA hadn't approved it for those that age cohort. So um, I wondered about that Richard, in terms of the these arbitrary numbers that we have received and um, whether that explains some of the outcomes in this modelling. Because uh, you, sorry, yeah, go no, ahead. Yeah. I was uh, just going to say because you do uh, draw out the fact that the modelling is predicting very high case numbers, even at 70 and then 80% of the adult population. So, I mean, if, if the 80% is actually really 64% of the total population, I guess it's probably less surprising that we would have a, a kind of concerning outcome. Yeah, look, a absolutely. I mean, well, let's go back to the key point. You know, the CEO of the Doherty Institute says, oh, you know, modelling's, you know, obviously we should update it, obviously we should update it. Great, okay. <laughs> when, when was the last time you heard the New South Wales Premier or the Prime Minister say, oh, of course, the 70 to 80%, that could be updated any day now. We could be changing that mm. when we get more updated data and new modelling. So we've got the modeller making explicit that, look, this is a dynamic changing process and when the information changes the model changes and we've got a prime minister and a new south wales premier who's, who's trying to cover up the her failure to suppress the virus in her own state saying no nah, we made a decision 70 percent it's it's all on and 80 percent no worries off we go so there's a hundred there's a complete disconnect between <laughs> what the modeler is telling us which is you know basically the bleeding obvious and, and what, what our political leaders are doing with that modelling. And, and that's what's really the problem here is not that some modelling was done and that wasn't perfect, but that, you know, and I, I have written this, like never in Australian history has, uh, has, has a prime minister based such a big decision uh, on, on one piece of modelling. And, you know, you've got the modeller themselves saying, well, you'd want to update it. And you've got the prime minister saying, I'm not for turning. So big picture, we should be quite alarmed about that. 
you know, that, 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 that we've taken a subtle piece of, of, of modelling based on, on, on clear limit assumptions of limitations and we're turning it into this kind of doctrinal truth about a national plan. It's, it's bizarre. Um, as for, you know, whether or not kids should be involved, well, can kids get the virus? Yep. Can they get sick from it? Yep. Can they spread it? Yep. So... <laughs> There's, mm. there's no epidemiological reason uh, to either set targets that ignore them as a percentage of the population uh, or to uh, suggest that, it, oh, it's okay to let it rip through them. And, you know, people, in my experience, people tune out when you say too many percents at people. So let, let me make it simple. Um, if we open up when 80% of adults are vaccinated, there'll be point. Two million unvaccinated Australians. 9.2 million people won't be vaccinated when we hit our target of 80% adult vaccination. 9.2 million. Why? Well, because there's 5.1 million kids under 16 and, and 4.1 million adults uh, comprise the 20% unvaccinated population. So forget percents for a while. Let's just mm. talk about people. There'll be 9.2 million unvaccinated people when we hit this magic number of 80%. And keep in mind, you know, you've got Scott and Gladys talking about 70%. Even if you get to 80%, you've got 9.2 million humans in Australia unvaccinated. We should be very, very cautious about opening up that 9.2 million people to a rapidly spreading deadly disease. Absolutely. And this is something which really hasn't been pointed out enough is that these people won't have had any protection. And sure, they might get some protection by the fact that others are vaccinated, but not enough at 9.2 million Australian human beings. Uh, and so, yes, it, it is absolutely concerning and shocking. Um, Richard, you said there about, you know, being doctrinal and it seems that these uh, politicians, particularly Berejiklian and Morrison, are being very rigid in their messaging but also their plan. Clearly they've uh, put forward this plan or the Prime Minister has. Um, the states originally have accepted it at National Cabinet. Um, some of them have walked away, had to think about it, reflected on things and realised, actually, it's not hunky-dory. This isn't exactly what we thought it was originally um, and that they are quite concerned. We've heard the ACT Chief Minister, your own uh, Chief Minister up there, Richard in Canberra, um, you know, expressing very, very clearly his concerns about children and wanting to extend the vaccination rollout timeline further out to actually include them in it so that we don't uh, lift restrictions too soon and not give children this opportunity to be vaccinated. We've also even heard Tasmania, uh, the Liberal government down there, say that they want 90% of the total population down there vaccinated, which is what epidemiologists like Mary Louise McLaws have been advocating for. So 
Um, we, ha- we are seeing, although they're definitely not the loudest voices and they're not getting this kind of media platform that the Prime Minister and Gladys Berejiklian are, uh, even Daniel Andrews reinforcing um, some of New South Wales messaging, I wonder what you think about that political situation that we're seeing ourselves in here and the fact that I guess Scott Morrison is is leveraging it to his advantage by wedging the other states and making it look like he is being the critic of this response to COVID that, oh, all these states are, are wanting to keep their numbers down to zero and you know, we need to get out of the cave is some of the language he's been using. Uh, all of this seems to deflect responsibility away from him onto the states and and cause, I guess, quite convenient conflict. Oh, absolutely. And, and causing conflict is, of course, his goal, because if, if other people are fighting, then he can distance himself from, from his uh, it's not a race comment, you know. So... Uh, look, there's a lot in that question, yes. but but let me let me just sort of say that the the the, the national plan, uh, you know, was agreed to by all the premiers, and it's a publicly available document. It's very short, actually. It's kind it's one of one page, page yeah, one page long. So the national plan is, if you read it, it's very broad. It's very vague. You can drive a bus through any particular <laughs> part of it, and you can yes, see it's that literally that's, dot points. That's for anyone right. wondering. Yeah, well, dot points and, and, and very vague sort of language around mm-hmm. the dot points. Uh, so you can see how eight state premiers and the prime minister could agree to it because they didn't really agree to anything concrete. Now, the prime minister is very keen to move the debate on from his it's not a race to the race is over. I've called it early and it's it's time to come out of the cave and all these Labor premiers want to live in the cave forever. So don't, don't remember the fact that I was slow to start the race. Please focus on the fact that I was quick to call the race finished. Now, that's, that's the strategy that's playing out, and, and Gladys Berejiklian's into that 100% because, you know, she couldn't control the virus anyway, so she might as well say, well, Band-Aid had to come off anyway, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be stern mum, but, you know, we'll all be better for it in the end. So, so Scott Morrison and Gladys Berejiklian, who only three weeks ago were in a furious public fight with each other about who was more incompetent, uh, with, with Gladys suggesting the Prime Minister was incompetent for being so slow with the vaccine rollout and and, and Morrison being uh, attacking the, the, the Premier for doing such a bad job of lockdowns, they've moved on from that conflict. Now, they now have a new united position, and their new united position is it's a very wonderfully neoliberal one. Oh, it's actually all up to us as individuals to get ourselves vaccinated, and if we get ourselves vaccinated and we follow the rules and we don't have any underlying health concerns because we made good decisions about our own health, it's very it's wonderfully neoliberal. It's all kind of up to us now. Uh, but, of course, you know, that's not what the Doherty modelling says. Uh, the Doherty modelling says that we would be absolutely bonkers to start letting the virus rip below 70 or even 80% vaccination. And in New South Wales today, they're at 40% uh, double vaccination, 40%, so half of that target. And, you know, the the Doherty modelling assumes that the contact tracing system won't fall apart when it has. It assumes literally, you know, maybe we should talk about this, yeah. the Doherty modelling literally assumes there are no state borders. 
So this idea that all the states will open up to each other, you know, when we hit some magical number, um, well, that's based on a scenario where uh, where there were no state borders. There's no the word borders. State borders aren't mentioned in the Doherty modelling, mm-hmm. uh, and the Doherty modelling assumed there'd be a sort of small, steady, even uh, sort of outbreak across all the states. There's nothing in the Doherty modelling that helps the Tasmanian Premier decide whether he should open up his state, which has got zero cases, uh, to New South Wales that's getting, you know, a, a thousand unlinked cases a day. There's literally nothing in the Doherty modelling to help the state premiers make that big decision because the Doherty modelling never anticipated this scenario. Yes, yes. And and obviously federalism and, and the need for state premiers to do things differently given we have such different border arrangements right now. Clearly, we're not borderless. We're pretty much the opposite at the moment in Australia. Uh, Richard, before you just uh, mentioned neoliberalism, so I just wanted to close off that part of the chat, um, and you mentioned this messaging that uh, certainly Gladys Berejiklian has been hammering home very, very often uh, and quite starkly also, um, We've heard her say, as you said, uh, you know, if you get vaccinated, you stay at home and follow the rules. Uh, And, you know, if you keep yourself well and, you know, you haven't got an underlying health condition, because as we hear at the press conferences, uh, when people who have died are read out, a number of them are are supposedly said to have had a health condition. Uh, Well, I just wanted to point out something I saw on Twitter, which you probably saw as well, um, which was from the Grattan and said that 40% of Australians have an underlying health condition. So the idea that um, we we could or even should or could possibly want to victim blame people who have died of coronavirus at press conferences uh, is also something particularly neoliberal, I would say, Um, you know, bringing it back to supposed individual choices. And and we have seen a lot of uh, people, including Karen Phelps, come out, the former AMA um, president and former parliamentarian, say that this is just, um, you know, morally and ethically reprehensible. So I, I just wanted to ask you, I guess, about that and the the messaging that's coming out from uh, states like New South Wales about, you know, deaths and ICU and, um, you know, deaths are horrible, but uh, this kind of language coming from different state premiers, what effect do you think that might have in a political situation? Do you think that it uh, potentially is giving people a, a false sense of security? Oh, it's designed to give them a false sense of security. It's it's basically saying, look, if you're a if if you're a right thinking, fair minded community person who's got themselves vaccinated, why shouldn't you be able to go and visit your family for Christmas? Because these these other people, and you know, we, we should be sympathetic for their death, but these other unvaccinated people who probably broke some of the rules and, you know, had a few underlying conditions, uh, why should they get in the way of you and your freedom? This is not an accident. This is Australia Mm -hmm. writ large. We... We blame women for being sexually assaulted. You know, you know she'd been drinking. We blame the unemployed for their unemployment. Oh, you know that they didn't have a lot of skills. 
this is Australia. We blame victims, uh, and now we're doing it with with COVID. And and just to be clear, well, who cares if someone had an underlying condition? They're dead, and and they died because of a disease, and and a disease that spread because the premier couldn't control an outbreak. And sure, we can't keep it out forever, but we could have kept it out for longer until we'd vaccinated the person who's now dead. So, yeah, let's let's not gloss over what's going on here. It's a very, very clever, deliberate strategy. Now, whether it works or not at large numbers, I don't know. At the moment, people are thinking, yeah, I wouldn't mind my freedoms and I've been vaccinated and, you know, I, I go for a walk each day, my health's all right. You know, who cares if the people are dying well, sorry, I, of course I care if people have underlying conditions, but who cares? That doesn't minimise the fact that they died of a disease for which they weren't vaccinated against. Mm, and wouldn't have died, you know, very unlikely to have died and would have lived a healthy life. Many people have underlying health conditions that are managed throughout their life until, you know, great elderly ages. So, yeah, it's of shocking. It's, yeah. It, it's just shocking, but it's not an accident. No, no, and and so to bring this um, back into what we were moving towards before, and it certainly is a, a good link, I think, um, Dr Jeanette Young, the Queensland Chief Health Officer, was asked how many deaths she would be comfortable with uh, in terms of, you know, when they open up and, and all of this thing and get to certain vaccination targets. And she was obviously quite upset and angry about the question, um, given she is a doctor and is committed to, you know, stopping all preventable deaths from happening, just whatever their cause. Um, but it did highlight to me one of the points that I think is missing in this debate, and it's a little bit disingenuous to say, um, about the states that have zero COVID, oh, well, they just want to be zero forever. Um, I don't think most of the states, certainly not all of them, um, and maybe only Western Australia at this point, want to have zero COVID for a very long time. Most of them understand that the, the whole point of keeping uh, suppression down and suppressing cases right now to the lowest level possible, which was agreed to in the plan, is so that we can safely allow people to be vaccinated in an environment that means they're not going to be infected before they get the opportunity to be vaccinated. Because as we've already mentioned there, Richard, this was a race. The Prime Minister didn't actually treat it like it was one. Um, and so now we're in this position where many, many younger Australians haven't been given the opportunity until recently to even book a vaccine. And in, at this point, there are many who can't access it yet. So um, it's just I just thought that was particularly interesting. And maybe it's something that uh, is being used as a bit of a weapon against the states to, to have this very black and white um, left and right view of, oh, you just want zero COVID forever, when really I think there's more nuance to the position of these states, which is we want to let everyone get vaccinated first and then we'll follow the plan. Of course, absolutely. And and so let me give you a different metaphor. Imagine mm. the tide. Imagine the tide is coming in and uh, you see it coming in and you walk away from the tide at a, at a, at a calm, safe pace. That's, that's not complicated. Um, but if a tidal wave occurs or a storm surge occurs, then the, the tide can rise very quickly and a lot of people and a lot of property can, can be harmed. So, yes, it's true that we can't keep COVID out of Western Australia forever. That's absolutely true. 
But what we can do is try and keep it out for long enough that we've got 80, 90, maybe 95% of people vaccinated, certainly everyone who wants to be vaccinated. And then when we open up to COVID, people will still get sick and die. Uh, but the people getting sick and dying won't be people who wish they'd been vaccinated and weren't given the opportunity. So, yeah, the Prime Minister is, you know, as as is his incredible skill, he's the Prime Minister and I'm not. He's good at this version of his job. He's asking everybody to choose between two options that are designed to herd people his way. Do you want to stay in a cave forever or do you want to open up and be free? And, and, of course, what most people would like to do is to open up and be free and be safe. And please, if anyone wants to, I really encourage them to go to the Doherty Modelling. Read the executive summary if you read nothing else. It's short. And do a word search. Have a look for the word safe. You won't find it in there. <laughs> There's nothing in there that says that this plan is safe. They haven't given medical advice that it's safe. They've given some advice about likely spread of a disease with different vaccination rates and different assumptions. They haven't said we should do it. They haven't said it's safe. They've just said, yep, here are the things that are going to happen. And what most people don't realise is that one of the things they say is going to happen is if we open up at 80% adult population, um, then we'll get to around 40,000 cases a day of covid within six months of opening up, 40,000 cases a day. And a lot of those cases will go to hospital and sadly a lot of them will die as well. That's the plan. That's the safe plan that the Prime Minister says. We have to choose between 40,000 cases a day or living in a cave like Perth. Well, mm. you, can see, you can see why the Premier of Western Australia says, well, if you force me to make that choice, I think I'll take the cave. But he doesn't want to stay in a cave forever. He wants to make sure, like the ACT Premier, uh, Chief Minister Andrew Barr has said again and again and again, he just wants to make sure that as many people as possible can be vaccinated before the virus crashes onto our shores. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. And Australia has essentially squandered that opportunity, or certainly in New South Wales, as we've discussed here. Uh, Richard, you mentioned there these kind of underlying assumptions in the modelling, which we've talked about some of them, but there are a couple that I'd love to explore in a bit more detail with you, um, given that the 40,000 cases per day of Australians being infected with COVID-19 at a vaccination target of 80% of adults, uh, you know, that is actually the optimistic picture. So um, some people might have thought, well, that must be, you know, the worst case scenario. That is not actually the case. So um, there are a couple of points in that eight facts uh, document that you've put out at the Australia Institute that are really key here. And the first one is one you've mentioned briefly, which was the states and this assumption that there would kind of be an even spread of a very low level of cases across the states and that one state or two states wouldn't be having a mass outbreak of cases over a thousand to 1,500 and Victoria here at 240 to 250 at this point. Um, and then obviously there are other assumptions. One pretty kind of crucial one, which you've pointed out, is the test, trace, isolate and quarantine system or TTIQ. So Richard, I wonder if you could take us through these really key assumptions in terms of the, the way that the picture is looked at at a, a kind of national level, but also the public health measures that are assumed to be in place and the TTIQ system. 
Yeah, look, it's it's hard to overstate how heavily the Doherty modelling relies on the effectiveness of our testing, tracing, isolation and quarantine system. And and I confess, and until I first read the Doherty modelling, oh, I don't know, three or four weeks ago now, until I'd first read it, like everyone else, I'd probably massively underestimated just how important and just how good Australia's testing, tracing, isolation and quarantine system had been. So let me give you an example. When the Ruby Princess, the passenger ship early on uh, in the COVID crisis, came into Sydney with hundreds of, with thousands of people on board, hundreds of whom had COVID, and all those hundreds of people literally got off the boat into Sydney onto planes and flew all around the country, there were no vaccines, none. Not a single Australian was vaccinated. We didn't have any defence against COVID at all, none except the ability to find people who had it through testing, figure out who they'd been speaking to through tracing, stick them all in isolation as quick as we could, and then once we figured out who did have it, isolate and quarantine them until we knew they were better. That's it. That's the only reason tens of thousands of people didn't die in Australia last year. Not vaccination, TTIQ, test, trace, isolate, quarantine, is the only reason that 60,000 people might, might go watch the grand final, the AFL grand final in Perth. The only reason that Perth doesn't have any cases at the moment is because TTIQ worked. It took an initial dose off that Ruby Princess and other initial doses that came in through our failed quarantine systems, and we kept suppressing it. And it was no fun, no fun. You you in Melbourne know how lack of fun it was, but it mm. worked. So in the Doherty modelling, the one thing that actually has the most power to suppress the virus is TTIQ. According to Doherty, it's it's more effective than vaccinating 60% of the population. It's the main game. It's the main driver. And one of the assumptions they make in Doherty is that we would never let an outbreak get so big that our testing and tracing system would collapse. Well, guess what? It's already collapsed in New South Wales. They don't even publish the unlinked numbers any when they do their press conferences anymore because they're so big. So the a key sum, assumption in the Doherty modelling is that we have a small outbreak with highly effective testing and tracing in place, and at worst we have partially effective, which is still really quite good. We just don't ever, nothing in Doherty ever anticipates the collapse of the testing and tracing system that we've already seen in New South Wales. And as I said at the beginning, no problem making an assumption in June, they probably thought that was a plausible assumption. But here we are in September, relying on modelling done in June based on the assumption that things would never get as bad as they already are in New South Wales. Mm. And, I mean, partial testing, tracing, isolate and quarantine, uh, I mean, if you look at New South Wales right now, they've essentially almost given up on Sydney uh, and the LGAs of concern and are really focusing their contact tracing on, you know, the key outbreaks in sensitive settings, no doubt in aged care homes and hospitals would be a priority, but also mainly in uh, regional Vic regional New South Wales where they think they can make the most impact and the most difference at the moment. And there's obviously a lot of concern 
in regional New South Wales, especially for um, our First Nations people who are being affected by coronavirus right now. So um, I wonder when we're looking at the reality versus what is modelled in that paper, um, the optimal versus the partial test, trace and isolate, um, you know, where are we at? Are we even at a partially effective test, trace and no. isolate in New South Wales? No, 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 absolutely not. So so in the Doherty modelling, they have two scenarios, optimal testing and tracing, and that was based on New South Wales during 2020, and partially effective TTIQ was, was modelled on uh, the kind of the, the darkest days of the biggest outbreak that we'd seen in, you know, 700 cases a day in Victoria. So the Doherty modelling had two scenarios in it, optimal, which is as good as we thought we could get it, and partially effective, which was still pretty good. You know, um, uh, you know they, they're not actually crystal clear about how good, but, you know, during the Melbourne second wave, the TTIQ system held up, it didn't collapse. Well, it has collapsed in, in New South Wales now. It, it's collapsed. But there again, and it's going to get worse, right? The case numbers are rising and rising. And the longer that you have unlinked cases floating around in the community, the more unlinked cases you are going to have. So unfortunately, it's very hard to put the TTIQ genie back in the bottle. Uh, Gladys Berejiklian let it out. The Doherty modelling assumes you'd never let it out. But now we're still using the Doherty modelling to predict what's going to happen in New South Wales. So, yeah. so other states, including Victoria, are desperately hanging on to suppression strategies. Even if they can't get it down to zero, they know that they don't want it to get up around 700 or 1,000 cases a day because once it does and it kind of breaks through the TTIQ system – that's when it really starts to rip along. So so even if you can't get it back to zero, you still want to keep it under enough control that your testing and tracing can do what it's done so well, so well in Australia and New Zealand and elsewhere. Mm. And the table uh, that you put into this um, report that you've got and that replicates what the Doherty has got in their modelling um, shows infections, ward admissions, ICU admissions and deaths in the first 180 days for 70% and 80% adult coverage. So that's still the 9.2 million Australians not vaccinated, both with and without optimal TTIQ, test, trace, isolate and quarantine. So at 80% coverage, if we're going for the most optimistic picture, uh, if you had partial TTIQ, the symptomatic infections in the first 180 days would be 227,702 cases. Ward admissions would be just under 7,000. ICU admissions would be about 1,500 people and deaths would be 761. Um, now, that was like starting at a, a kind of low point of cases uh, in that modelling, wasn't it? And it was also yeah. not factoring in Delta to the extent that we know it affects people now. Um, so, yeah, and that, but you do see this kind of massive drop if we have optimal TTIQ, which I thought was pretty interesting. And I wondered what you thought of that, Richard. Um, it seems like there is a great effect of TTIQ uh, but it's obviously going to be less effective if our cases get too high. Do you think that's modelled or reflected in the modelling? Yeah, look, it's a really important point. So let's just be crystal clear. In the Doherty modelling, the Doherty, the effectiveness of testing and tracing 
is not sensitive to whether you've got a hundred cases or a thousand. It's not. And that's a major problem. And I think that a lot of people have been confused. I'll, I'll, I'll use the passive voice here. I don't want to put allegations out there. I think a lot of people are confused. They've heard that the Doherty modelling doesn't matter whether you start with a small outbreak or a big outbreak. Um, that's a fair description of the modelling, but it's not a fair description of reality. Um, the model assumes that no matter how many cases there are, the effectiveness of the testing and tracing system never gets worse than it was in Melbourne last year. Right? So, so there's effectively they set a floor and said it couldn't get worse than that no matter how many cases there are. So when you assume that it can't get worse no matter how many cases there are, you can't then use that model <laughs> to go and tell the public, oh, it doesn't matter how many cases there are, we think things will be all right. Well, what we've seen in New South Wales is TTIQs already collapsed. And, yeah, there's, you know, there's a lot of data. It's hard to talk about data on radio. But <laughs> what, what the Doherty modelling makes clear is if you had to choose between a, a really effective testing and tracing system and a high rate of vaccination, take the testing system. <laughs> it's actually mm. more important. Now, of course, you don't, you don't really want to choose between the two. You want both. But the only way, the only way to have both, have lots of vaccination and an effective testing and tracing system, the only way to have the combined power of both is to keep case numbers low enough that you don't overwhelm your traces. So the modelling assumes that the traces can't get overwhelmed, but they can so, and that's why I think, you know, Daniel Andrews is fighting so hard. Even if he can't get it to zero, he knows he's got to try and keep it low enough that he doesn't let the testing system get swamped. And the other states, of course, are actually helping New South Wales with their testing and tracing. The minute they have an outbreak, they're going to have to pull their testing and tracing to help their own citizens. So, yeah, we're not being honest about this. And, you know, the Queensland Premier, Anastasia Palaszczuk, was, was attacked quite brutally, I thought, for talking about some of the worst-case scenarios in the Doherty modelling. And apparently it was reckless of her to mention the worst-case scenarios. But, of course, then the, the, the federal government just always quotes the best-case scenarios in the yeah. Doherty modelling. So why is it reckless for a state premier to talk about the worst case scenarios in the Doherty modelling, which, by the way, are not the worst case scenarios that we can imagine. Mm. Uh, but if it's reckless for her to focus on the worst case scenarios in the modelling, why is it OK for the, for the federal government to, to focus entirely on the best case scenarios? Oh, absolutely. And uh, in this set of assumptions, and you were talking about vaccination and TTIQ, test, trace, isolate, quarantine, there's also continuous levels of public health and social measures, which is what they term these. So these are things like mask wearing, social distancing, venue capacity restrictions, certain activities in industries operating at um, lower levels. And you point out and, and make a lot clearer, I think, in your report um, that even even under the most realistic scenarios, the Doherty modelling predicts that stay-at-home orders, aka lockdowns, will still be a regular experience for many, up to 46% of the time. And 
if we go back to the whole point of this modelling, which um, the question that was posed and that Doherty modelling was meant to answer was if we wanted to stop relying on lockdowns, how much vaccination uh, and the vaccination level should we be aiming for? But what they essentially have come to us with, um, correct me if I'm wrong, is that lockdowns will still be a key feature some of the time, whether it's highly localised or whether it's statewide. Oh, absolutely. And again, this is why it's very misleading of the Prime Minister to kind of do his, do you want freedom or do you want cave spiel? Uh, Because the Doherty modelling is quite clear that we can and indeed must rely on lockdowns uh, to keep cases low enough that the testing and tracing and other things work. So, so this sort of false choice that we're being offered, freedom or caves, just isn't what the Doherty modelling uh, anticipates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, if we have really high vaccinations and if we have really effective testing and tracing and if we don't start with a major outbreak, And if we're lucky with our borders, our international borders, then, yep, we could avoid a lot of lockdowns. That is absolutely true. But for the Prime Minister to say, once we hit 70 or 80%, lockdowns are over, freedom is here, you know, vote for me, uh, that's just not (laughs) what Doherty's got to say. It's just Mm. not. No, and one thing I do want to to bring up with you, um, and I'd love your input on this given New South Wales's situation, and we just saw the press conference yesterday uh, with ICU physicians uh, coming out to talk about ICU capacity, and the, the Premier is talking about surge capacity of about 1,500 extra ICU beds that would be set up uh, and somehow staffed, although, to be honest, the description of how they would staff it with highly specialised people really wasn't very clear. Um, That is a real reality for New South Wales right now for the next month and month to two months because supposedly it's going to peak, although clearly that's also questionable if if the peak is happening in a week or not. Um, But one thing in the Doherty modelling, which seems to relate back to this current reality for New South Wales, is that it looked at the cumulative effect of symptomatic infections, hospital admissions, ICU admissions, and then deaths over those first 180 days if that threshold of 80% of adults vaccinated is achieved. And looking at that, um, that kind of table and breakdown by age group um, about all those measures was really interesting because it even says that uh, under 16, with those who are unvaccinated, 206 would end up in ICU in the first 180 days, uh, 404 between 16 to 39 years in the first 180 days. And we're already seeing, you know, three children uh, in in ICU right now in New South Wales. Um, so, and these are, you know, under 10. So I just wondered, you know, what your thoughts were given that the, our hospital systems presumably are or should be a key component of modelling, uh, given that we do have a limited capacity, even with surge capacity. And I just wondered if the modelling was reflecting or examining that. Uh, look, the modelling, again, was it was put together to help us do kind of two things, uh, to try and avoid lockdowns uh, and to try and not overwhelm our intensive care wards. They were the kind of objectives the Doherty modelling people were given. And 
and what the Doherty modelling says is if you get to 80% vaccination, there's a good chance that you might be able to avoid a lot but not all of the lockdowns and hopefully not overwhelm your intensive care wards, right? But New South Wales is at 40%. (laughs) We're not at 80%. Doherty never modelled what would happen if you open up at 40%. And while Gladys has not opened up, like there's still obviously lockdowns in place in in New South Wales, she never actually locked down as hard as Victoria or the ACT, and she's already starting to open things up when the intensive care wards are already beginning to overflow. And, and of course, you know, you heard the Premier, you might have heard the New South Wales Premier yesterday say, oh, if things get too bad, we might have to fly people into state. Yes, well, yeah. But guess what? So, again, she's assuming that other states won't be in the predicament that she's in. Mm. And the only way for them to avoid being in that predicament is to ignore the advice that they should open their borders to New South Wales. So, yeah, look, again, you can't blame the modelling for this. Uh, we've just got a political class that's just taking, it's just cherry-picking the numbers that they want to hear out of a complicated bit of modelling they're not updating those numbers as the circumstances change. Uh, and as a result, I, I fear there's going to be a lot of avoidable deaths. Mm. And Richard, you did a PhD in economic modelling. So modelling is your thing. Um, and I know that this is something which would often be included in an economic model would potentially be, um, if we we're looking at the COVID pandemic and outbreaks, we'd be looking at, you know, the social and economic costs of deaths, but we'd also be looking at those costs um, in terms of long-term disability and people who end up catching long COVID. And a lot of people who get a mild illness that's very low in symptoms, like a a decent proportion of those, um, you know, it's been seen around 10% potentially can get long COVID and have ongoing, long-term, very disabling symptoms. So I wonder, um, I doubt that that has been included in the modelling because I couldn't find it, Um, but it seems to be something that, you know, you would think that politicians would want to model uh, was not just the impact of deaths, but obviously uh, if people are catching long COVID and, and have a very reduced capacity to engage in society, and to work, for example, you know, shouldn't we be modelling for that? Uh, look, there's a lot of things that we should be considering. Whether we're modelling them or not, we should be considering a whole bunch of things, including who's in the 20% that aren't vaccinated. Mm. You know, like, is this randomly distributed? No, it's no. not. Um, but and yeah, they'll be going to school, a lot of them. That's right. But let's be crystal clear. There's no economic modelling that says we should do this. Now, that's okay. Like, you know, yes, my PhD's in economic modelling, but I spent a lot of time telling people, you know, don't overemphasise what what we can actually can and can't tell you with that modelling. So I'm perfectly fine with politicians making big decisions without commissioning economic modelling. But let's be clear, the politicians usually pretend that they love economic modelling before they, you know, give tax cuts to their friends or stop wage rises for their enemies or, you know, they all point to modelling when they want to. Well, I haven't seen any economic modelling that says, okay, um, uh, the Perth economy is doing better than the Sydney economy. Perth's locked down in a cave. Sydney's not. Uh, You know, Perth should take a dose of what Sydney's got if it wants to help the economy. There is no modelling out there that suggests this. 
this is all just gut feel. Now, again, that's fine. You know, that's prime ministers can send us off to war without economic modelling. Um, they can try and open up state border restrictions if they want. But, you know, the, the fact is that the, the, the epidemiological modelling we've got isn't well suited to this. And, yeah, there's no economic modelling on the short-term or the long-term costs of COVID. Um, but you can see that the hotels industry is just desperate to open up. And guess what? We're listening to them in New South Wales. Mm-hmm. And, Richard, um, given that we've just been talking about the modelling and how, well, you know, not all political decisions are made on modelling, um, maybe we could just finish that conversation that we've been having about the, the kind of other inputs that are occurring here that we we have uh, been discussing, which is really about values and ideology. And there are so many kind of social inputs and political inputs into this scenario, which we've been talking about. Uh, What do you think might be the way forward, given that the Prime Minister is so successfully deploying this wedging strategy between the states. I mean, clearly it helps for us to have this conversation on air because then people listening can, you know, understand the situation better and identify what's happening politically. But what might be a solution and, and, you know, should we be following the lead of WA and the ACT Chief Minister and actually, you know, call it out when uh, it's not actually going to suit us and our values and, and who we want to protect? Yeah, look, it's hard to make predictions about the virus, let alone the politics of the virus. But I think the Prime Minister and Gladys Berejiklian are playing a ruthlessly effective short-term game. Um, They've both succeeded in shifting the debate away from their failures on vaccination and their failures on lockdowns into a hypothetical conversation about future freedoms. But... It's hard to believe that after New South Wales goes through what Gladys is about to put them through, that after people in Perth and Brisbane and Hobart and even Melbourne see what the Sydney hospital system looks like in the next week to months, it's very hard to imagine Scott Morrison going and trying to win votes in Western Australia saying, you guys should open up. So, yeah, I think it's working in the short term. You know, it's shifted the debate away from his obvious failings into what he thinks is a potential strength. But, you know, reality bites. And, yeah, again, I, I don't know. No one knows what's going to happen, you know, but I, what, except that we know that case numbers are going to continue to rise, intensive care wards are going to get swamped and people are going to die. Um, how, how do people in other states view that? My hunch is they don't view it as freedom, and mm. that's that's going to be hard for Scott Morrison. Well, you point out something that's very clear here is that there's so much uncertainty, even with modelling, um, that you know hedging your bets and and really staking your claim on one plan and becoming very rigid on it is certainly not going to benefit you in the long term because it's probably, as you said, going to to bite you. So we will see. We'll have to wait and see, won't we, Richard? Um, But thank you so much for taking the time to explain this to us. I've already had messages from people on social media saying how helpful it's been. So I'm very, very grateful for your time and expertise. Well, well not at all. And I'm just about to do at 11 o'clock a webinar with the CEO of the Burnett Institute, who knows far more about epidemiology (laughs) than me. Yes, Uh, Brendan Crabb. Brendan Crabb. He and and I are going to do a webinar in... 40 minutes time at the Australian Institute website looking at 
what we call a vaccine plus strategy because we do need to vaccinate, but we also need to do a whole bunch of other things. And, and you know, the Prime Minister with his technology, not taxes sort of approach to things isn't good at holding two ideas in his head at the same time. But for public health, we're going to need to do that. Absolutely. Well, Brendan is a really brilliant uh, expert in this area and I have great respect for him. So I hope you enjoy that conversation. Shall do. And um, thanks for having me on. A pleasure, Richard. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. And I'm really delighted to be joined by Bree Lee today. Bree is an author and a freelance writer. Her journalism has appeared in publications including The Monthly, The Saturday Paper, The Guardian Australia and Crikey. I actually spoke with Bree about her first book, Eggshell Skull, a number of years ago, I think now. It won Biography of the Year at the ABIA Awards, the People's Choice Award at the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards, and also was longlisted for the 2019 Stella Prize. And uh, Brie has written a whole range of short and longer works, so it's great to have her on the show. And uh, also interesting to note that Brie is a non-practicing lawyer and continues to engage in legal research and issues-based advocacy, as will become clear in this program because we are talking all about this new book that Brie has written. It's called Who Gets to be Smart? Privilege, Power and Knowledge and it's been published by Alan and Unwin. Hi there Brie and thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me again. It's lovely to be here again. It was such a, a great thing to sit down with you in person last time mm. in a studio. It feels really odd that that was a thing. One day, one day we will be together again. Exactly. I can't wait to get back to normal. We are obviously doing this by distance, but what is a great thing, I guess, in this book is that you did get a chance to uh, to travel before the pandemic hit. And that's really where this book starts off is your trip over to England. In particular, you talk about your time in Oxford where you visited a friend, Damien. So I thought that would be a really great place to start because it is a really fascinating chapter, that first chapter, and it does introduce us to all of the themes and issues that this book continues to explore throughout the subsequent chapters. So could you just tell us a little bit about what brought you to Oxford and what your first impressions impressions and also expectations were of your experience there? Yeah. So, I mean, my brilliant and dear friend Damien, um, who is still my friend, uh, thankfully, was named a Rhodes Scholar. And 2018, in many ways, is sort of feels like a lifetime ago. Obviously, it's like a solid three years, but it's also, you know, when we could travel overseas. And for me personally, it was when I, my opinion on all of these sort of questions has changed radically since 2018, when I started researching and writing this book. And this is a roundabout way of saying that when I went over to visit Damien at Oxford, it was at a time in my life when I felt like him being named a Rhodes Scholar made him a winner and me basically a loser. And I had so guzzled the Kool-Aid, so to speak, 
and was just so enamoured by Oxford, by this incredibly well-maintained bubble, by the sandstone, by the history and the, the sort of commitment to knowledge that was on show. And I expected there to be, you know, sort of idiosyncrasies and probably strange things as well. But when I got there, I, I was actually quite shocked. Damien, one of the many ways in which he is brilliant is that he's got an incredible memory um, and he's also very generous. And he took me on a tour, not just of Rhodes House, but also of Oxford and all of the different colleges. And I very quickly just became quite shocked and uncomfortable at the way I felt that institution still had its gaze so firmly set on the past just how much it revered a sort of bygone age of these sort of gentleman scholars and these enlightenment ideals. And one really obvious sort of easy example is that out the back of one of the colleges, there is a sort of field and there are all of these cows in the field, these Christchurch cows. And it used to be um, at a time when not so long ago, Oxford was only for the sons of the landed gentry sort of thing, that these young men would bring a cow from their estate with them and they would drink the milk for their tea and tasty treats um, from their cow. <laughs> and obviously the cows are no longer used for that explicit purpose, but there is still this entire field that is just grass with cows on it set aside so that there is still a kind of marker of that heritage um, and it was just sort of, there were so many examples like that where in the architecture of the place, but also in the sort of staffing, the curriculum of the place, just the, the ideas and the ideals and the, the priorities and everything, we're just looking backwards instead of looking forwards. And it just made me more uncomfortable than I had anticipated. And it started me on a journey of asking questions about well, who gets the opportunity to go to a place like that? And how does the sort of narrowness of who they allow in affect and shape power and who gets to wield power in the rest of society? Well, it is very striking what a kind of institution and system like that, who that kind of excludes and whether it's conscious as in the original kind of settings, which was we're consciously excluding women, for example, and then we decide eventually to, to let white women in or rich white women. But then there are a whole range of other people of different intersectional identities that are also consciously and unconsciously excluded. And, and as you say in the chapter, there's also really obvious class divisions on campus as well. I wonder... Did it feel to you, having been to an Australian university yourself, did it feel markedly different in the way that it ran? Because obviously people are living on campus, which is a possibility here in Australia, but it seems like it has this level of intensity and, as you say, all of this heritage that um, is really constantly reinforced. So I wonder, you know, in that sense, in terms of the culture and the class divides and other divides, what was noticeable to you and, and what did you observe? Yeah, that's a really interesting question and I haven't been asked it before. And I think there is sort of two parts to it. One is that I spoke to one of Damien's friends who said, and this friend was a student at Oxford, um, and he said that in his opinion, Oxford was one of the oldest maintained bubbles in the world. And in that sense, 
I I would agree that, you know, certainly in the sort of quote-unquote Western or English-speaking world, there's just a, a depth of history, like a, a, a sort of level of richness of sort of precedent in one particular postcode that just has really anchored it in the past. And one thing I mention in particular in the first chapter that Australia doesn't suffer from so much is, of course, in the UK, the the way the British can immediately stratify people depending on their accents. And, you know, we have different types of those difficulties here, but just not to the same degree that it seemed present when I visited there. But what I would say Australian campuses do differently is that there is this lingering insecurity um, and I think it's a sort of cousin or maybe just a part of what we sort of widely refer to as the cultural cringe, where this inferiority complex as a kind of good little colonial outpost down south means that sometimes we can double down on trying to establish traditions and um, sort of these like, like sandstone conservative elements to sort of prove ourselves and to try and fast track the sort of steepedness of the history at a place like Oxford. And so you get, in particular, the big sandstone universities in Australia, sometimes referred to as the sort of group of eight universities or what have you, where they even, you know, again, it's in the architecture. It's in the way they hierarchically structure their staffing. It's in the curriculum. They try to emulate places like Oxford as a shortcut to legitimacy. And that is just... I mean, it's colonization 101 is um, just trying to copy and paste things in a new place and set up a whole new social hierarchy based on the way the motherland does it. It did, reading the experience at Oxford, remind me of my own time living on campus really briefly because we did have formal dinners where you had to dress up in a robe and wear your best dress and preferably a dress. And um, it really did when you were writing about going into breakfast and the situation you experienced there and also visiting the Bodleian Library, which is also such a well-known institution, a library across the world. You know, these are the things that certainly did have echoes here. And it did seem like, uh, although it's not to the same scale, that we do have these really odd traditions that don't seem to have a, a reason for being necessarily in a logical, rational sense. And as you say, that hierarchy that is imposed kind of without you realising. Mm, and that's what's so difficult to fight about these institutions who really admire the Enlightenment thinking. You know, the Enlightenment was an incredible time where power was prized out, out of the fingers of religion and into sort of science and knowledge. But also what it did was set the white man on the centre of the map and give him a unique position of being able to be quote unquote objective and point at other things and understand them. And when you create that centre versus the other, what you automatically do is set a blueprint for hierarchy of all different types of people on all different types of lines. And so what you get in Australia is this process sort of during and, and continuing because of colonisation of, of taking the blueprint of a university from the UK, 
bringing it across to Australia. And because it's steeped in this Enlightenment language, people are just blind to how absurd and idiosyncratic it often is um, and how it's not necessarily the best thing for the Australian context and how it's not necessarily the only way to do things. Brie, I want to bring in some of these white men that you bring up in your book because you demonstrate in this book and in this first chapter, for example, you talk about Cecil Rhodes, the fact that these tertiary institutions are centred around and spurred on by the funding of the ideology of these old, now mostly dead white men of a couple of centuries ago who were heavily involved in colonisation, is it any wonder that we end up with these colonial hangovers and, and legacies within these institutions? So I'd really love to hear about Cecil Rhodes and, and the controversy, I guess, at Oxford University and, and how his legacy is so intertwined and why that causes such ongoing consternation. So the most important thing to mention about Cecil Rhodes. Um, Well, actually, there are a lot of important things. Um, But one is that it is not true to say that Cecil Rhodes was doing what was, quote unquote, normal and acceptable in his own time. To criticise Cecil Rhodes now, people who like his legacy and like what he stands for will say that that's sort of presentism is what people like me sometimes get accused of, you know, that you're judging people from the past by today's standards. Putting aside for one moment that hindsight is a gift, what we know from copious records are that in his own time, Cecil Rhodes was an extremely divisive figure. This is one example. Oxford University wanted to give Rhodes a honorary degree, um, an award, and almost 100 academics threatened to boycott the ceremony because he was, in his own time, so notoriously good at bloody, knees-deep colonisation and violence over in Africa. And he was just, he laid the blueprint for apartheid, he made extraordinary amounts of money from the bloodiest version you can possibly imagine of the diamond trade. And, And he... Not that this would be an excuse, but he didn't even just sort of do it from a distance. He really was over there rolling his own sleeves up. And his own writing suggests that he, he was very proud of what he was doing, expanding the British Empire and making huge amounts of money from raping and pillaging. So when these almost 100 scholars and fellows at the time threatened to boycott the ceremony, what happened was that more rich and powerful people who liked and supported Cecil Rhodes said that they would boycott if the 90 or so academics boycotted. And essentially what happened was that in his own time, people tried to cancel Rhodes and they couldn't because he and his friends were too rich. What happens then is that this sort of uh, one historian who I cite in the book, who I, I agree with, this sort of seems to like set in Cecil Rhodes a desire to really feel like he had conquered Oxford, you know, this like opposition that came up against him. And so when he dies, he leaves just this extraordinary endowment, so much money that he is basically able to purchase his legacy. And he creates the Rhodes Scholarships, and sets out the criteria for which he believes he is funding future generations of men for the world's fight. 
And it is very clear from his own words and work that he thinks that to mean the extension of the empire. And it's men only. The scholarships are only available to, you know, whites only schools. It's all precisely as awful <laughs> as as you can imagine. I mean, it, it is important to note that some Rhodes scholars have, so these are young people now for several decades who have gone through and financially, um, but also in a sort of kind of kudos and, and career trajectory way benefited from being Rhodes scholars. Some of them have been the most outspoken against Cecil Rhodes's legacy. Um, there are complexities involved, of course, but what is just undeniable is that in recent years, there is a movement called Roads Must Fall. Over in South Africa, the movement was successful in getting, for example, a statue of Cecil Rhodes taken down from the university campus. The Roads Must Fall movement is more broadly and importantly about things like staffing, about things like um, opportunities for education, about things like curriculum. But of course, the statues are this sort of, you know, center point of the argument. Where the statue of Cecil Rhodes is on Oxford campus is above Oriel College. When I was there in 2018, there were still heated discussions happening about the Rhodes Must Fall movement in Oxford. People wanted it taken down. And too many donors threatened that they would remove their funding for Oriel College if the statue was taken down. And then what I found out much more recently was that when Black Lives Matter hit the mainstream in 2020, the calls for the Rhodes Must Fall movement got louder again. And there was an entire like commission set up by Oxford to look into the matter. And they returned their decision only recently saying that, no, they would still keep it up. Um, and so it's just this battle, <laughs> the battle that started when Rhodes was alive of whether or not people are willing to look his legacy in the eye continues. And it seems that people who win each stage of the battle are just, again, whoever has more money at any given time. You point out in the first chapter on Rhodes the fact that there's also an ongoing issue, and this I know for certain that it's an issue here, the fact that only 3.9% of Oxford's professors have a black and minority ethnic background. Cambridge is a little bit better at 6.4%. And one of the things I thought was really interesting was that um, you say undergraduate students can still complete a history degree without studying the non-European world. I mean, that last point is not the case, I know for certain, at uh, Melbourne University, but it is concerning that the focus can be so narrowed, not just in curriculum, but also in the staffing arrangements at these kind of institutions. And we do see that here as well in terms of women and the number of women professors, for example, as well. So I wondered when you were thinking about that, because you did talk to Damien and, and he did mention, oh, I've got this one class, that's where my Milton class is. <laughs> uh, and he's studying one subject on Milton and only a specific part of Milton's work. So it got me really thinking about this nostalgia for knowledge and learning for learning's sake. And obviously it does 
build skills to have uh, critical thinking, for example, in philosophy and literature and, you know, history. But I wondered what your thoughts were on that development, especially here in Australia. You talk about the fact that now suddenly employment and education are lumped together so closely in ministerial portfolios. We've kind of got Oxford on the one side with this nostalgia and this focus on deep knowledge, it sounds like. And then on the right-hand side or the Australian side, we've got a government that's pushing ever more towards, well, it has to have an outcome and we need to prepare these people for the real world. I wonder whether you had any similar observations about, you know, is that why we keep getting drawn back to these old institutions is because we have some nostalgia for that way of doing things, even though we're being very desperately pushed into a digital era? Mm, This is a really big chewy question that I think about a lot. The way I conceptualize those two sides is that, in my opinion, there exists a healthy tension between them, or there should exist a healthy tension between them. Because I think one of the reasons the universities as an entire group, that's the Australian universities as a group in 2020, were unable to sort of more clearly advocate for themselves as a collective last year was because there is this deep rift, this sort of chasm even between the universities about what a university is for and therefore who a university is for. And the two camps are this sort of knowledge for knowledge sake idea, um, you know, that, that a university shouldn't need to point to something like graduate outcomes in a sort of marketplace sense to justify why it is deserving of funding, that it is about education, it's about critical thinking, it's about just knowledge gathering and knowledge sharing and future generations and investment in the intellectual health of future generations. The problem with approaching that idea with a sense of purity or or with too much exclusivity is that it makes it really exclusive. It's not an option for most Australians to just take three or four years and explore knowledge for knowledge's sake. What I think is a really important thing is talking about how we get more first-in-family students and more equity students getting the opportunity to go to university. And so then we go to the other side of the question of what a university is for and therefore who a university is for. And it, it becomes much more about gainful employment. And if you're someone who has never had a parent or an aunt or an uncle, let alone a grandparent or maybe even a sibling, go to university and you're sitting there at the family dinner table trying to articulate why it is worth the opportunity costs, why three or four years is worth not being able to work as much during that time, why it is worth not being able to meet your caring obligations, during that time, why you would have to relocate for those three or four years away from your family. And I think that for those people who we really need to be encouraging to feel like university is a place for them, something like graduate outcomes is hugely important. Um, I think a university can and should and must be both of these things. But part of the problem in Australia as well is that there is such a huge difference in student cohorts and the funding structures and arrangements for the sandstones and for a lot of the others. So these sandstone universities, for example, um, take 
a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction, I think it's maybe maybe a single digit percentage, perhaps 10% of equity students. And they're the ones that get the most funding from philanthropic sources. They're the ones that can charge the highest fees, etc. And so in 2020, when Frydenberg said that universities were sitting on millions of dollars of assets and therefore shouldn't be eligible for JobKeeper, and then universities have had to shed tens of thousands of staff, um, in reality, not all universities in Australia are sitting on millions of dollars of assets. Only some of them are, only the very sort of well-off rich ones. And so then there's a further question where it's like, well, if this is a government-funded organisation, if it is essentially a school that should be charging young people or anyone really charging people money to get an education, how are they making so much money that they can amass millions of dollars of assets? Are they being run by run too much like businesses is a common argument we hear where university vice chancellors make significantly more money than, for example, the education minister whose door they're knocking upon asking for more funding. When I just when I compare where I'm doing a PhD now at the University of Sydney to one place I visited in 2018, for example, um, JCU in northern Queensland, the difference in student cohort, student demographic, the difference in funding arrangements, like it is a mistake to try to understand all of the university sector in Australia as being one thing. That was the first part of my interview with author and freelance writer Bree Lee. That uh, book that we're discussing is called Who Gets to Be Smart? Privilege, Power and Knowledge. Uh, now we're going to head into the shorter second part, which looks at hierarchy throughout society, but particularly how it's present in educational institutions and uh, also looking at the education system at the secondary and primary levels as well. So um, this is now coming up for you uh, as part two of my pre-recorded interview with Bree Lee about her book, Who Gets to Be Smart?, I want to talk a little bit about another concept that you bring into the book. It's called Kyriarchy. And I just loved the conversation and all the work that you were drawing from in that particular chapter, because it really was quite resonant and directly relevant to what we've just been saying in terms of universities and academia, for example, and having different hierarchies and tiers. And obviously within academia, there are clear tiers of employment and there's kind of stable, secure employment. Um, in America, they'd call it tenured employment. And then there are these insecure, casualized positions for academics, for example, or even just adjunct more honorary positions. And you talked to a really wonderful person, Omid Tofidjian. Um, you know, you have these great conversations with him. And one of the quotes that you draw out from his own views, I just really wanted to read out because you were having this conversation with him about, should I undertake a PhD? What do you think? And he said, Quote, I would say that academia is second only to Manus Prison in terms of being the most violent and cruel institution I have ever encountered. And that was just, I guess, really striking to me because it's something I see academics 
say from across the world, not just here in Australia. And it seems kind of directly relevant to this concept that you bring in in Kiriaki. So I wondered if you could um, share with us that concept and its relevance for society as well as for universities. Yeah. So Kiriaki is a term that was first coined by the feminist theologian Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza, but I first encountered it via Ahmed and and for anyone who doesn't know, Ahmed was the translator for Behrouz Bouchani's incredible multi-award winning book, No Friend But the Mountains. And Ahmed and I met half a dozen times over 2018 because Behrouz was still imprisoned on Manus Island when his book was winning the awards. And so Ahmed would go and accept the awards on his behalf. And so I was chatting to him this one time and I said to him that, that he seemed to me to have figured out a way to combine really powerfully and effectively activism and making change and, and, and doing things he cared about with academia and something I love, which is just reading and writing and, and research and learning for learning's sake and curiosity and inquiry. And he was very reluctant to give me advice. And then he said that line, um, which you just read out, which of course left me sort of gobsmacked. And I went away and read up a lot about Kiriaki And basically, the most important thing to remember about it is that it's a pyramid, and then we call it the Kyriakal Pyramid, and that it it is sort of simple in that if you imagine a pyramid, it's easy to imagine how when people are stratified, the more people on the bottom rungs of the pyramid, the higher the people at the top get to sit. But the most important thing to remember about the pyramid is that the fewer people at the top the better for the people at the top. It is all about exclusivity. And once I started seeing this Kairiakal pyramid, I couldn't unsee it. And in particular, I think Kairiaki is a really valuable tool for understanding institutions and the relationship between individuals and institutions. And I, that's, I mean, that's something I'm very interested in questioning. You know, humans collectively create processes, procedures, institutions like academia or, for example, the law. And then we sort of export um, any sense of responsibility for the outcomes or the effects of those institutions on individuals. And when you start looking at academia through the Kyriakal pyramid, like through this lens, What becomes very obvious is that a lot of our academic institutions gain a lot more money, power, prestige by virtue of who they exclude rather than who they include. One very obvious sort of easy target example is that private schools, often we will hear the the word exclusive used as a marker for the excellence (laughs) sort of or or fantastic standards of a school. And that that is something that collectively we should feel deeply ashamed of because a school is supposed to be a place where young people are taught and where knowledge is gathered and knowledge is shared. And just once you start looking for patterns of inclusion and exclusion, things tend to become very clear. And Ahmed puts it much better, but essentially in, in several of his writings or interviews he's done makes the case that the reason universities, for example, are able to maintain their position in society is because they are so good at denigrating the knowledge that is produced and shared in any other place. It's all about exclusion. 
and exclusivity. I loved the long quote you you cite from his podcast episode, Race Matters, because that last line that he gives there is so relevant and very relevant to what you've just said. Quote, so for the university to have this privileged status in our society and in our community and in politics, it needs to other other sites of knowledge production. Um, I had a moment of reflection there as well, because we do have this really quote unquote accepted way of delivering knowledge and sharing knowledge. And we do see, you know, things like community radio and community media challenging that, for example, and people making their own podcasts challenging that and zines and all kinds of different ways of producing knowledge that are not through a tertiary institution. But it did make me think that you're kind of pushing up against something that is really just widely accepted and quite invisible is that othering process of other channels of knowledge. Yes, and it's just this same thing again where um, it is so extraordinarily um, invisibilized <laughs> that this is the way it's always been done and this is the way it needs to be and it just comes back to that really ingrained colonial enlightenment mindset of, of this is the centre and the centre must hold. One of the things that uh, is really interesting to me as well, obviously, is you don't just talk about tertiary institutions, although that is clearly one place where young adults and teenagers and uh, mature people can go to upskill and you know learn and uh, in many cases, as you point out, increase their earning potential and capacity. But there's also the precursor to that, which is preschool, primary school, high school, and there's great levels of inequity in those systems as well in terms of access and also the way that, as you said about high schools, it's all part of that hierarchical system as well. And the funding is also really problematic, as you point out. So I didn't want to to miss out on that area that is so critical because they are really the channels and the funnels toward university and tertiary learning if, if people are so inclined to pursue a certain area once they leave high school. So I wondered if you could just share with us some of your observations when you were thinking about childhood and teenage years and this other area of learning, because it is often a time when my learning was most alive and, you know, I was really excited by reading and, and I was lucky to have some really passionate teachers in the arts, for example, that really spurred me on. So, you know, it seems to make all the difference to a child to have access to quality learning in these other institutions before university. Yeah. I had no idea how bad our two-tiered schooling system was in Australia before I started researching this book, and it is a national disgrace. So about 40 years ago, it was only about sort of single-digit percentage of kids who went to private schools. And that is how it still is these days, or, you know, maybe in the sort of early teens of percentages of kids who go to private schools um, in the UK and Canada. Australia is an absolute outlier in how it, how many Australian children go to private schools and that the vast majority of those private schools are religious. So nowadays, um, it's almost a 50-50 split in Sydney and Melbourne at secondary schools, down the middle, private versus public. That is a drift that has been happening in the last four decades. 
Um, but it's been in particular noticeably getting significantly worse since Howard era policies enshrined this idea and more importantly, this rhetoric of school choice above everything else. And the premise is that parents are the sort of starting point of education policy and education economic policy, and that parents should get to choose where they want their children to go and the government or the state should support them in making that decision. The problem with that, though, now is that almost 90% of students with any kind of higher needs, so the government identifies that as, for example, kids for whom English is a second language, kids with disabilities, kids at really smaller regional schools or from low socioeconomic backgrounds and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids, kids who, when they turn up on Monday morning, need a bit of extra support to be able to reach their full potential and to be able to essentially compete with the kids who, by luck of the draw, have it better at home and in their postcodes. And almost 90% of those children are at state schools. The drift over the last four decades means that there are extreme, very extreme concentrations of disadvantage being left behind at state schools. There is an accepted wisdom in middle class, our large middle class of Australia, that if you are, I'm not saying I agree with this, but it is, the, the stats show that it is the trend, that if you're a good parent who cares about your kids' future and education, the millisecond you can afford to, you will get them out of the public school and across to the private school, especially for high school, for secondary education. And the results are devastating en masse. And what you get is parents who feel an obligation to put the interests of their children first and them often feeling torn that they don't want to buy into this system but feeling like they don't have a choice. And it's just, it's so awful. And when you look at the data as well about school funding in real terms, school funding for private schools keeps going up at a much faster rate than school funding to public schools goes up. But year upon year, the public schools are taking more students than the private schools. Like just, it's, it's, it's the opposite <laughs> to the way it should be. And people sort of just don't, care about it. People know what the problem is. We haven't even started talking about transparency. Um, and it keeps getting worse. Um, it's been almost 10 years since the Gonski report came out, which highlighted all of these issues. But essentially, the power of the Catholic Church as a lobbying organisation, and the power of the aspirational middle class of Australia is too much for any political party to, or certainly either of the major political parties, they don't seem to be willing to treat all children equally because it's just too too risky for them to take that stand. Yeah, it sounds like there are so many vested interests that it gets to the point where, oh, it's all too hard and it gets put in the too hard basket. Yes, and it just doesn't have to be this way and, and it's not this way anywhere else. And the result is that Australia has the fourth most segregated by class schooling system of all OECD nations. It is a shocking thing to have deeply embedded in your education system. And I think so many Australians would think they're egalitarian or would aspire to be egalitarian. And yet something so foundational as education is anything but egalitarian. And I did want to just quickly cite a statistic that supports what you've just said. 
you say that in the five years to 2018, public schools took 76% of Australia's enrolment growth, but clearly the funding was not corresponding to that enrolment growth. Brie, I wanted to just finish this conversation to reflect on what your thoughts were, especially in the concluding chapter, what you ended up with when you had reflected and gone on this trip to Oxford. You'd also done obviously extensive research on these topics. You certainly do arrive at a different position than when you started. So I thought it might be a great chance to mention that reflection and that point of conclusion that you have reached in your thinking on these issues. Yeah. Before starting this work, I had not realized the degree to which I had just outsourced my priorities to these institutions with this sort of blind acceptance. I had just taken this criteria sheet for these huge ideas like success and like intelligence itself and worth. I had just accepted this criteria sheet from my successive from the successive institutions through which I passed. Um, And they made me miserable. And they taught me and ingrained in me ideas of some people being better than others that I am very glad I'm now free from. It It used to be that I would encounter these institutions, like these sandstone buildings and these, all of these structures, you know, not just the buildings, but like these, these titles and these credentials and these opportunities and everything. I just, I used to take them with a blind acceptance and accept that I was not excelling in that system to the degree I could or should have. And now when I see these things, my automatic response is one of suspicion and questioning. And certainly my ideas as well, we didn't even touch on any of the sort of science or this question of what intelligence is or could or might or should mean. Um, but certainly now I am. I feel much more free and convinced that the thing I most value actually is, is more a disposition. It's curiosity. And anyone who tries to equate an individual's worth with their intelligence is no friend of mine. Brie, it is such a obviously extensive book and there's a, so much detail in there, as you mentioned, that we didn't even get a chance to touch on. It's called Who Gets to Be Smart, Privilege, Power and Knowledge. I've just been speaking with Brie Lee. Thank you so much, Brie, for taking the time to sit down with us and actually get into some of these topics in some real depth. Thank you, Amy, and hopefully next time we can be in the studio again. I hope so. I can't wait for the day. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Amy. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. And I'm very, very excited to have on the line joining me via Skype. Uh, independent art curator Sue Kramer and Sue is joining me because she has curated uh, alongside uh, the curators at the Art Gallery of New South Wales a wonderful exhibition which has been an in-person exhibition or was an in-person exhibition before New South Wales was locked down uh, and forced to close their doors. However, very excitingly, it is now a virtual exhibition which you can go through in your own time. Uh, it's called Hilma Af Clint at Home. It's on the Art Gallery of New South Wales website, but you could also just Google that, Hilma Af Clint at Home. 
and you'll find it. And uh, I'm going to be chatting now with Sue Kramer, and we're going to be talking about this pioneering Swedish artist uh, born in the 19th century, very prolific in her painting and drawing in the 20th century, and really a trailblazer, uh, not just for women, but for abstract art. So it's really exciting to see that uh, Clint's work is actually getting this recognition, and you'll soon hear why it hasn't received that type of recognition for a very long time. So I welcome you now, Sue. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Amy, for, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> uh, well, I've got to say, when I first saw that this exhibition was going to happen, I got very excited and bookmarked it for myself. Oh, I just, I can hear myself talking. Do you mind um, turning down your volume or going to your headphones? Yeah, I've just put, I've got my headphones on. Oh, it's just echoing through the system. Oh, I think it's better now. I'll, I'll try again and we'll see if it's echoing. And no, it sounds like it's gone. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I was very excited to see this and also really pleased that Australia has been so fortunate to have so many of Af Clint's works actually make its way to the Art Gallery of New South Wales. I believe it's 129 works in the exhibition. So, yeah. Yeah, first of all, could you share with us uh, Hilma Af Klint, her background and what makes her so significant for us today? Um, we'll get into the nitty-gritty of that, but just the kind of broad outline and sketch of what she means to the art world and, and to art history. Oh, she's a truly, truly wonderful artist. Um, you could say she's really an artist for our time. She's captured people's... Uh, contemporary audiences' imaginations in a way that no other artist really has. Um, she's quite ex quite extraordinary. I mean, I, I'm a curator of contemporary art, for example. I've never done um, an exhibition of an artist born in 1862 before, and um, I've come to Afklint through the eyes of contemporary artists, really. Um, I heard about her through contemporary artists. I saw her work through contemporary eyes, and I could see how her work spoke to contemporary times and how it really, it, it, um, it was, it, the, the most extraordinary thing to have occurred in the time that it did, um, the the project that she began um, in 1906, 1906, um, which I emphasise that year because it is so early in the 20th century, um, when she began um, to paint works that were so ahead of their time um, and she embarked upon a series that uh, were breaking ground in all sorts of ways, uh, visually, conceptually, spiritually, uh, uh, were extraordinarily brave 
um, and that lay hidden from history uh, for so many years. And when we finally came to knew about to know about them, they just sang to us of relevance to our time. And in fact, she she painted them, she was she painted them mindful of the future. She sought a um, an audience in her time, but she was unsuccessful. Uh, she brokenheartedly really was not able to find um, a, um, a resonance among the people of her time. And uh, she asked uh, that the paintings be kept out of public view until at least 20 years after her death. And as things turned out, it was many decades later before the works came to light. And so they really are the most important discovery um, of, of our time in terms of um, European modernism, let's say, um, and the story of of abstraction, but also of spiritual art within the European tradition. But then her work also speaks very broadly. It can be understood very broadly. It connects outside the European tradition. It 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 um, it brings in knowledge of of Eastern mysticism. Um, it, it, it has a much broader sense of wider, um, wider spirituality as well. You know, we can't, we can't box it in and that's why it's so fascinating. She's, she's really a remarkable artist and, uh, we, we just can't box her in and, 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 Above and beyond, the works are incredibly beautiful uh, and of an astounding scale. And, and that's, that's why I think people are just astonished when they see them. And it is, I'm in very, very grateful to the art gallery. It's wonderful. It's just heartbreaking that the works are boxed away. <laughs> Because of the lockdown, what can we do? Absolutely nothing because of the COVID lockdown and the art gallery has made them available online. But there's nothing, there's nothing that can replace standing in front of those paintings and experiencing them in the person face yeah. to face. That's so true. And it comes up for me personally uh, all the time in terms of studying art and and understanding its process, but also getting that feeling that you get when you're in front of an actual object or a painting, um, because there's something that is completely unique to that actual experience and in-person worldly experience and an emotional response. And obviously, as you said, it's a really um, spiritual kind of 
feel that her works give to the viewer. Um, I want to, just before we jump into spiritualism and the movements that she was a part of uh, and the other women as part of those movements, I just wanted to actually to set the scene or, or give people a real feel for the other art movements that were occurring uh, before uh, and at the time and after in terms of uh, going from figurative in terms of, you know, lo looking at a painting and seeing a human or an animal, then moving very slowly uh, into abstraction, which we saw in Cubism, you know, at the start, we could actually see some certain figures and then very, very gradually um, we saw very little and it was quite abstract. And there are, were a number of obviously well-known artists, male artists, that we are quite familiar with, no doubt. So uh, just for people to get a sense of the time um, in an art history timeline, what kind of art movements were going on whilst she was, uh, I guess, forming her own uh, abstract language? Well, there was, um, you know, this was the time of um, the movements of uh, suprematism, constructivism, you know, were happening in Russia. Um, Kandinsky, um, but you know they were the abs they were the early abstract movements that that she in fact preceded. She managed to proceed uh, in terms of discovering a, um, a a purely abstract language. Uh, Would Mondrian also count in that? Mondrian, yes, with his neoplasticism. Um, Picasso and his cubism, um, but but she she came out of a, a figurative tradition. She herself had trained <clears throat> at the Royal Academy. She went to um, she went to the Royal Academy at at age twenty. She um, she she trained in an academic tradition. Uh, which means that she um, she learned how to portray the world in a very naturalistic way, uh, she, and she was excellent at it. She was a star student, and she was very, very good at observing the detail of the world, um, uh, landscapes and portraiture, and she could do that kind of work very, very well. And we do have some of her botanical studies in the, um, in the exhibition because her studies of nature are important. Her connection to nature is very important. So they, they were more the, um, the pre-modern, the pre-modern approach. Um, there was also symbolism which was, um, I guess, Impressionism um, around this time, which, you know, things that were starting to challenge the, um, starting to challenge that academic view of, um, of, uh, of the naturalistic world. Um, and, um, but F. Clint, when she painted, when she moved out of, because by 1906, 
although she was um, although she was a an um, extremely skilled as a uh, naturalistic painter, she she um, she decided to take a much more experimental route as an artist, but in secret and privately um, to explore this other body of spiritualist work uh, where she she did a kind of um, explored forms that were abstract and symbolic and did not look like nature, that were not um, naturalistic but um, took on a different form. And she knew that the world were not quite ready to see these works yet. And even she was not sure what they meant because, you know, a big part of the story is that she believed that um, she had been commissioned to do these works um, by spirits and um, and that she was channeling these images from spirits. So her transition from the naturalistic world into a more radical experimental world was via the, the mechanism of spiritualism. Mm. Well, it reminds me that uh, spiritualism was quite um, not common but popular amongst a number of well-known figures. And even in Australia, Alfred Deakin, who was Australia's second prime minister, was actually very, very much interested and into spiritualism and theosophy and mysticism. So channeling uh, spirits from a a higher plane may sound quite, you know, different um, in this day and age, but at the time it was something that was quite of the time. Um, And I know that you certainly have pointed out this idea of a world that existed beyond visible reality as being something that's quite connected to the science of the time and the scientific discoveries. So could you share with us that really interesting link Mm. that she had between, you know, occultism and, and spiritualism and science? I'm glad that you said that because it was a much more, um, respectable, um, approach in those days than uh, than we often think of it these days as as you know something a little bit on the edge, but in those days it it was more um, understood. It was still perhaps more an artistic elite um, or you know who were interested in these ideas, but um, because there were new um, there were new experiments or discoveries around um, scientific discoveries around X-rays, um, radioactivity. Uh, there was a new understanding of the um, the um, the the composition of the atom, and that there was a world hidden within the atom. Um, that that nature actually comprised a hidden reality and that there were waves within the air 
that we can't see and that there is a, an invisible presence around us and that science and um, the, you know, the occult or the spirit can, can explain each other to some extent. And it was a way of the, the um, harsh, um, you know, rational world, you know, the distinctly rational um, uh, explanation of the world, receiving something of the more um, uh, emotional and the spiritual, you know, the religious. And it was a way of the two coming together and complementing each other. Um, and explaining each other, and there was often, you know, a coming together of, of science and religion, and you know, it made sense to the scientists as well, you know, to some scientists as well as um, as well as to the, uh, the to the spiritualists, mm. and uh, so it was very much of its time, and it was part of modernism. It was part of of understanding this new world. Um, so it was, it was important to, to set it in that context. And, and there's, a, there's another very important aspect of, uh, of spiritualism as well that I think is important to mention, and that is that within the realm of spiritualism, um, women could find a voice. Well, I was just about to ask that. <laughs> so we're thinking the same thing. Um, yes. Because she she was part of a group called The Five, which was uh, also made up of women. That That's right. And um, because it uh, it's very important to understand that um, Hilma would never have been allowed to make these paintings as an artist, as a woman, unless she had found a way to do so um, that was outside the realm of the given structures. And this was her way of doing it. Her way was to do it through spiritualism. Mm. And I know that she was very inspired by, you know, the natural world, but through this abstract mode, as well as obviously what she felt she was channeling uh, through spiritualism and through meditation and these kind of uh, techniques that they were using with their automatic drawings, but also with their paintings. And there was a really interesting quote from the catalogue uh, by Hilma Af Clinton. It was about how she actually approached the painting. So she says, quote, the pictures were painted directly through me without any preliminary drawings and with great force. I had no idea what the paintings were supposed to depict. Nevertheless, I worked swiftly and surely without changing a brushstroke. Um, now, with obviously great technology nowadays uh, in conservation, we can see whether there are underdrawings uh, in any painting. So I just wanted to ask about her technique, uh, particularly in these paintings that are made up of the series, the 10 largest, because they are those just absolutely striking, overwhelming, uh, stunning mm. paintings mm. that seem to mm. encapsulate what she's saying there. Well, we do understand um, that she did make preliminary drawings for some of the works. And we do also understand that that particular um, statement, which is incredibly powerful, um, 
was how she felt in regards to some of the works, the, some of the early works. And she did write it around the time of making the, the ten largest, which are those extraordinary um, more than three-metre-high paintings, which are the centrepiece of the exhibition. Um, it doesn't refer to those paintings, but it um, was the statement was made in the same year. Um, I was really interested that they're actually painted uh, in tempura. So that yes. is also a really remarkable choice to be making in terms of your medium. It is. It, it may be that she was, uh, because contrary to, uh, you know, um, what is often thought about, um, Hilma, that she was a recluse. She she actually did travel a lot. She went, she travelled a lot and she travelled to Europe and she had seen a lot of frescoes and, um, and um, uh, religious murals. And she may have been inspired to use tempera from seeing religious murals. Um, and she... You know, I think that's very interesting as well. And, and I, I wanted to ask about the the ten largest in terms of the symbolism and the abstraction in those paintings, because I've been wondering for a very long time. So I'm really keen to get your thoughts on um, the painting number six, which is adulthood, and it's a beautiful kind of mauve lilac uh, background with some kind of circular uh, shapes and spirals. Um, but one the black kind of shaped outlines in that painting, to me, having studied uh, actual anatomy before, it reminded me of the female clitoris in terms of the under anatomy. Um, yeah. And I just really wondered whether that was intentional or subconscious or am I wrong in, in reading into that? I don't think you're wrong. I, I'm looking at it um, now also. I think that um, I think that the paintings are full of reference to human sexuality um, and botanical sexuality. Mm. I don't think you're wrong at all and that they are very sexual paintings. Uh, I think you're spot on, actually. And um, uh, um, you know, it's uh, it's it's a very good observation. Well, I'm glad I've been confirmed with that because I I don't know, <laughs> it's just really weighed on me for a long time, and I've never had the opportunity to just discuss it with anyone <laughs> before. So, yeah, it, I think if anyone is really um, keen to, to compare, you should yes. definitely look it, up the anatom very, anatomical it, drawing. It's very fleshy. Mm. Yeah, and, and uh, the colour choices also are really interesting. Obviously, tempera lends itself to this palette that she's chosen. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I just was also interested in how the, the colours that she's chosen and we, if you compare it to her male counterparts, there's a, a kind of massive a gap in terms of what she was achieving and quite a unique one. Well, that's right. And that, that particular... Um, um, emblem that you're looking at brings together the three the three colors the yellow um, the you know the yellow the um, 
the blue of the the two sexes, and then the the fleshiness of the of the um, of the pink, which is also a colour of erotic um, erotic love, you know. Yeah. So I mean, it's lilac as well, I guess. Mm. But you know, so and and, and I think that. Um, I think that you know all of these uh, these paintings are incredibly multi-layered. They're, they're not ever one thing. They're, they're many things. Yeah, that's why I think you could probably stand in front of them for hours and find something new in it. And what I loved about the curating of this show, which is present in the virtual exhibition, is the fact that in that room you still at least get to see how these paintings have been combined and placed together. And having the 10 uh, so wonderfully arranged, I think also adds to the impact and the viewing experience. Yes, yes. And you can go up, you know, you can go up really close to the paintings um, you know, you can choose to go up to uh, different details. Indeed, uh, and zoom yes. in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're running up to the hour now, but I do want to make sure that people know where to head so that they can go into this exhibition and enjoy these works that we're just talking about. There's so many of them, as we mentioned, 129. So uh, it's really well worth doing. And I know so many people here in Melbourne are desperate for some cultural activity. <laughs> so I'm sure it'll be much appreciated here and elsewhere in Australia. Um, Sue, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I know we've just scratched the surface of her yeah, work. Yeah, no, no, no. I've enjoyed that very much. Can, can I also um, give a plug for the catalogue? Yes, absolutely. It's beautiful. Because um, the catalogue is fully illustrated. We've illustrated all the works in the exhibition and there's some really terrific essays and um, I'm really proud of it. And I, I'd, I'd love it if um, people thought to it's, – it's available from the Art Gallery um, store. Yep. And, um, you know – It's also in readings because I saw it there. So if anyone's oh, in Melbourne, you can, we can collect and, possibly. You know, it's just it's just heartbreaking that people can't see the show. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Virtually we'll have to do. But it is, yeah. as I said, you feel like you're in the room. So it is something that's, I think, a good workaround for to make the most of these works while they are here in Australia. Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks yeah. so much, Sue. I really okay, appreciate it. Thank, thank you so much, Amy. It's been lovely to talk to you. And you, and a congratulations. I appreciated it. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All the best. All the best to you. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.